In this podcast, we're talking about machine learning probability machines. Then we're talking about electrification and all the problems involved in the whole vertical chain of, uh, of, of this whole process. Yeah. And then we are going to end with some mythical machines from Greece. Sounds about what we are. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Sounds and, about right. And maybe the future for our industry. And yes. maybe the future <laughs> for industry. And a couple of jokes. sitting here with George and Neil. Mm. George, can you briefly say what is your background? Yes, um, I'm a mechanical engineer uh, as basis um, and uh, after that and after working for about seven years in the uh, air conditioning industry um, uh, with many roles, so a little bit sales, a little bit uh, business development, uh, also uh, in a sense purchasing, but also mostly uh, engineering and supervising uh, projects. Um, then uh, for the last six years, uh, I've been, no, seven years, I've been in the automotive branch uh, within purchasing. So uh, a good part of, or uh, yeah, the largest part of this was, as I mentioned, uh, the power, uh, the, yeah, power train and um, new projects uh, that uh, yeah, had to do with new uh, uh, engines and, and the parts for these engines. Mm -hmm. Nice. And mm -hmm. Neil? Yeah, um, <clears throat> I uh, also studied engineering uh, in my first degree with George in London uh, and then I went on to do a postgraduate in applied thermodynamics uh, which is basically playing with fire at Cambridge. Uh, managed to survive that then spent the following 10 years doing technical management consultancy uh, around the world with uh, everything from uh, tractor manufacturers in northern Finland to uh, uh, Formula One race teams uh, and it was again focused on control systems and powertrain um, but the, I would say the singular thread throughout my entire career was automating stuff that was boring. Um, and, uh, unfortunately I find everything that is repetitive to be very, very boring. Mm -hmm. So I try to automate it. Um, and that led me into using things like neural networks, which back in 2006 was a very novel idea for most people. Uh, now it's something that almost everybody on the street is aware of. Uh, but I'm still very reluctant with this term artificial intelligence because I think it's just dumb maths mm -hmm. that doesn't understand anything exactly. inherently. If you would uh, explain to uh, your neighbor or your mum well, uh, what is the neural network, what is AI and what, why... Yeah, why this is, uh, we might get into a sort of... Uh, to save us from getting into a boring discussion, I would say that um, the terminology AI uh, has changed over time. So back in the 1950s, a calculator that was capable of doing long division was considered artificial intelligence uh, by everyone. It was uh, amazing, almost like magic. Mm. Uh, and this term has moved over time. Um, I think if we're, if we're really to get to a phase where we say something is artificially intelligent, then it would have to apply consciousness. And mm. as we can't really define what consciousness is in uh, biological creatures, 
uh, we're going to have a very difficult time defining what artificial intelligence is. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, what's happened over the last few years is that we've uh, sort of enabled the usage of what you'd call probability machines. So uh, an interesting example is maybe 15 years ago, uh, we, we were talking about you know autonomous cars and if you spoke to engineers, they would say it would be very difficult for an autonomous car to to you know happen in our lifetimes. And the reason was that the way that we programmed stuff was using state machines. So we'd say, is the light red? And then the action for the car would be wait. Mm-hmm. And when the light turns green, then the car is allowed to go. Yes. So um, having these state machines made things very problematic and the amount of program code needed to cover the infinite or almost infinite possibilities or permutations of um, driving scenarios would be so great that nobody would uh, nobody ever be able to code this over a period of time. Um, and then computing power became cheaper and cheaper following Moore's law. But also people started using probability machines, which is basically if you sat a computer next to a driver for 100 million kilometers, what's the probability that it would be able to assess all of those different situations that a driver would come into contact with. And of course, not a singular driver would drive this many miles, but putting a computer next to a number of drivers doing Mm -hmm. this, then you can assume what the probability is of a certain action being safe. And that's basically the way that a probability machine is used today. But this topic was already 15 years ago on the rise, you, are you saying? Uh, it was on the rise, yeah, but it was it was still people were thinking about this in terms of control systems and classical control systems. Mm. So um, they didn't think it was possible to to make an autonomous car in, in the classical control system way. And then what we've seen is this development of autonomous control systems used using probability machines, which is neural networks, in okay. in one form. Do you believe that not only control systems, like if you think of a control systems in cars, that is going to maybe at some point be autonomous systems, do you think we will see that also in a lot of other areas, like um, uh, con- yeah, control systems of solar panels, control systems of this, control systems of that, should they become more like probability machine versus a state machine? Um, yeah, I mean, you can have a mixture of the two, of course. Uh, and uh, you know that's something that they they now come up with a new term for, which is uh, which will come back to me in a second. Um, but it's basically uh, robotized process automation plus a bit of machine learning. They they call it a fancy name now. Um, but this we will is... put that in the show notes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, but this is a marketing term that's used by a number of you know big companies today uh, to do this. Mm-hmm. Um, it, so yeah, you will see where it's, there are areas where people think that problems cannot be solved because the, the process is too complex. So for example, assessing uh, the uh, flooding of areas and uh, uh, like uh, dam failures and stuff with hydropower. This is something that's considered to be quite complex and you need to do an assessment every time of each case because the rivers are unique, the flood probabilities are unique for mm-hmm. each catchment area of water and so on. Um, but actually it's something that machine learning plus, uh, you know, a little bit of uh, AI as they call it, or state machines, there is a process in there. You just need to break it down to the correct number of parts and feed the machine with enough data to understand the scope of the problems that it'll mm-hmm. encounter. 
And the benefit of doing these things is that by using a probability machine, although we don't understand exactly what the code is doing, um, we get a good result out of it that's comparable with using the traditional simulation approaches in one ten thousandth of the amount of time. So it means you can do more work much, much cheaper. Yeah. Uh, coming back to the dams, you, um, I understand how it's gonna, how a probability machine would work with cars, but yeah. um, for the because you you have like tons of samples, uh, smaller uh, in scale, and then when you put them together, you you assume that this will be equivalent of a learning. Yeah. Or? So if we, but how do you do it with the dams? If we do it with a, a dam or a river, and we say a river is going to flood, so. What they normally do is they take a two-dimensional section of a cross-section of a river and they look at the depth of the river at different points. And they also look at the, um, uh, the geometry of the land around the river basin so to see what the height of everything is and okay. see if that area is going to flood. Now, what you're really interested in is um, like the geometry of the river and the flow rate of water going through it and the height of the water. But if you have all of these different examples with different cross-sections and different flow rates, eventually you have enough information to interpolate between these different results mm. and have a probability associated with that that would enable you to calculate the flow or the flood probability of, uh, of any other given river, as long as it's within the original data set that you, you had. Um, and this is something that people working in, in these very specialised industries mm. find quite difficult to understand that somebody can come from outside with no knowledge of their industry whatsoever and deliver results 10,000 times faster and as good as what they've done before. Mm. And that's the, I guess, the frightening thing about machine learning. Yes. I heard a person in the Netherlands who works a lot with, uh, he is usually very known for the doing the one type of polling in uh, before the uh, before the elections mm. uh, so he's doing a lot with statistics and then uh, around corona he got a little bit into the corner of conspiracy thinkers like saying that corona is not real but it, he was sort of talking more about uh, and he got out of that corner again but he he was talking about how classical medical people and classical virologists mm -hmm. um, and maybe knows a lot about biology but they are maybe not on the level of statistics uh, that uh, he is or his peers are and then to apply statistics to uh, uh, a virus outbreak uh, allows to really better understand what is important for example he was saying it's mostly the aerosols and traveling through the air. Like mm. you can wash your hands a lot, but you, the most important thing is uh, traveling through the air. And we see in the summer, people are sitting outside, then there's no, not a big issue. And we see in the winter, people are inside and we see a big spike, like, yeah. mm. and then, but they going a little bit more deeper into that. And um, do you think like, well, how much do you only have to be a statistician? Or to, in what uh, aspect do you have to be a machine learning expert? I think a machine learning expert is, is not necessarily the right approach. I think you know, a classical statistical evaluation is a process that enables you to look within reams of data and find 
interesting answers um, and, and find maybe the area where the virologist needs to take a, a more closer look uh, at the results. Mm. Uh, but if you have somebody who's just a statistician or someone who's an economist, um, then you end up with cases like the book Freakonomics, where you conclude um, results that are actually you know really, really interesting, but completely non-causal. Um, so it doesn't give you the the ability to determine causality from things that look like a positive correlation in mm. results. So just being a statistician or just being someone who's a specialist in machine learning algorithms or just being a virologist is not uh, perhaps where the benefit is. The mm. benefit is working across those teams. Yeah. So you mean the base, not the base science isn't always relevant anyway? Yeah, so the, the base science gives you a set of tools yeah. to um, look across maybe a wider area than uh, than you would normally do. Mm. Nice. So uh, the elephant in the room is uh, electric electrification. Mm. Uh, do, do you wish to say something about electrification okay. in the automotive industry? Yeah, I mean... Um, it's not like it's uh, something completely new. Uh, I think the automotive industry, and especially the heavy vehicle industry, has is in a luxury situation right now because we all assume that we know what the transformation of this industry is going to be looking like. The classical internal combustion engine powertrain is going to be replaced by battery driven or some sort of hybrid or whatever but electric anyway mm. um, and this is uh, I mean there's tons of example in, in hist of examples in history where the industry had absolutely no idea what was coming uh, like from film to digital photos and yeah. Kodak well. is the yeah. example exactly giving, yeah exactly just for uh, listeners like there was first film then Kodak was the best in making fo uh, film and uh, like photos that were using light falling on some chemicals in order to form a picture. Yeah. And uh, they didn't think that anybody would be able to touch them. But then came digital photography and it completely crushed Kodak, even though it was the biggest company. Same with maybe Blackberry. Yeah. And their silly uh, smartphones <laughs> that didn't have a touchscreen. And then yeah. I remember when I was in high school, there were there was always like one guy saying, "Oh, BlackBerry, I really need a physical keyboard." Mm -hmm. Like, but uh, he now has an iPhone, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But I thought so too. So I, I, I thought uh, parenthesis here. I thought about I really need a BlackBerry instead of the because at that time. I had um, uh, like a phone with like digits one to nine and then zero and asterisk mm -hmm. and stuff like that. So 12 di digit, uh, 12 keys. Mm -hmm. um, and then I was thinking, okay, a Blackberry would be so cool. But then something happened and all of a sudden there were touch screens and like with an integrated keyboard function. And, right, okay, this is like out of the window. Uh, yeah. But anyway, um, regarding the industry, then we are sitting in a bit of a luxury situation, unless something else comes that we don't know of, that we're saying, okay, it's gonna be um, electrified. So the whole industry apparently has uh, uh, the possibility to 
do some kind of shift to in, in invest in time and to uh, to to do the, this changeover in a in a good way. So it's not really um, a shock wave. It's not really turbulent, uh, but it, it's more controlled. This this shift. On the other hand, you have um, the, the, the there's always this tipping point, and now we're we are there because uh, like electric motors have been around for many many years, but now we are reaching the uh, the a tipping point where there's it's a more economic uh, mm. so the the package makes sense and I'm not not only total cost of ownership but also to to, to uh, all the all the uh, materials that we need and the supply chains that we need like it's 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 coming to a much more feasible situation um, and we need everybody because yeah. uh, they always are talking about the whole grid uh, mm. and the energy production and the charging points it's a full stack but it's yeah. in the a way ecosystem. the ecosystem uh, yeah, I'm thinking of the iPod where you could have uh, oh, yeah. a, a music store um, app on your computer to get CDs from into your computer a device yeah. to take it with you yes. um, like yeah, we should maybe do more ecosystem you have thinking. The, yeah, yeah, we have a complete solution basically yeah. now. Yeah, so now is the right time to have the the for the iPod example mm -hmm. that you mentioned. Um, but um, maybe yeah, on on that point, um, maybe eight or nine years ago, working in the automotive industry, um, the concept of electric cars was there was Tesla was on the market in California. Mm. And everybody sort of said, "No, this is this is not going to work. Garbage. It's not going to work. Mm. There's there's no, you know, passion associated with this electric vehicle. It's never going to, you know, like customers won't want one. And the perception of electric vehicles, because most of other people in our industry hadn't actually tried one. Or we tried the first. Some of us have tried the first Tesla Roadster, which was fun, uh, but it was kind of a novelty, and it was seen as something for the Silicon Valley elite to mm. uh, play with one of these toys." Um, and at the time, I was doing a lot of work with uh, sports car manufacturers, I think. And I was over in the US for a weekend and had the opportunity through a friend to try one of the Tesla prototypes, the, the sort of early performance versions. And as everybody knows today, that car is really, really fun to drive. And after you've been driving it for a few minutes, you want one. You know, it's uh, the same as driving a V12 Italian sports car in terms mm -hmm. of the the drivability and the amount of fun you can have and mm. how close you can get to losing your driving license. Um, so yeah. um, so the thing was that there was this perception in the industry at that time um, that uh, you know nobody would want to buy one of these. And I was flying back after the weekend and I was thinking to myself, okay, well, you know, you're gonna switch all of the cars to electric at some point. A, how is the grid gonna cope with that? And B, how much power is produced in Europe today? If we switch our entire vehicle fleets to, to electric, how much more is needed in terms of production? And from a sort of a macroeconomics sense, you wouldn't think that a company would invest in having an extra five or 10% production capacity in anything, just laying dormant, yeah. waiting for an opportunity to sell that. They tend to sort of have maybe a few percent at best uh, extra capacity. So there was no way that certainly for the heavy duty industry like trucks, um, that you would be able to uh, have the additional power capacity on hand and not just on hand within a national grid, but also at the right places. Uh, so that led me to starting a, a, 
a financing company that financed renewable energies, um, which has been of limited success, but certainly a very interesting uh, hobby, let's say. Um, mm. Yes, so, but then I'm thinking uh, to transition uh, the grid that takes time, and then we come, we segue back into the story that George was working on. Mm. Uh, we, you say we are in a position where stuff is moving gradually. Can you expand on the point that you were making? Yeah, um, I think we, we, were, we both uh, commented on this from different ways that we, we all saw that sooner or later this would be here. And now it's really upon us also in the heavy vehicle industry, in, in the uh, like passenger car industry much more so. Um, but now we we have, um, and this is what I think is really exciting in 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 the in in my work right now. We have uh, to fight against ourselves a little bit because we've become too good um, to uh, to 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 do small optimizations to work according to established processes. Um, in in new development projects, uh, to have a sort of relay logic between cross functions uh, within a company to to know what the um, what the project requirements are in terms of uh, emissions weight noise uh, fuel consumption and so on so the, the, the project definition actually was much more clear now we uh, what I what I see already coming into this new role um, I, the the, the 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 project the, the tar targets are moving a little bit and that means that we have to be much faster in, in getting there um, uh, so that at the end we will have something to to deliver that's going to be competitive because it's not only the established players anymore in the in the industry mm -hmm. and it's all, also a lot of new names coming up all, all the time and all over the world yeah. and we're going to have to work against them and win against them mm -hmm. as well. And, and, and I think this is really the key that George is, is, is cracking on for, let's say, the automotive industry as a whole. Um, we've had this competitive advantage for so many years, which has been this barrier to entry, an economic barrier to entry to our industry, which has been the combustion engine. Mm -hmm. And so the amount of uh, effort that you need to put into your uh, human resources in terms of uh, you know people who are competent at developing these combustion engines, making them you yeah. know meet the emission standards, making them meet the performance criteria, um, durable, and all of these things, and all of the supply chain with the tens of thousands of parts and components that go into making these yeah. uh, powertrains and making them reliable for seven hundred thousand kilometers in the case of a of a truck um, for the warranty period. So. That is a very, very high barrier to entry, and it's why we didn't really have that many competitors coming into the market. Mm -hmm. uh, I think Tesla was the first new American car maker in maybe 70 years, something yes. like this. Yes. Um, so it's this change of having this barrier to entry, whereas if you were a kid and you made really controlled cars, it's a battery, it's an electric motor, and a little controller, uh, electronic speed controller, yeah. and some radio equipment, that's it and you're out and you're playing and you're 10 years old with your ready control car, it's not that difficult to make one. Uh, and it's pretty much the same, I would say, for uh, an, you know, an electric vehicle today in comparison with the complexity of building a combustion engine vehicle. Yes. Uh, even if you had the ready control combustion engine, 
toys. Yeah. They were very complicated to keep on the, you know, keep running and uh, lots of mess and so on. Yeah, so, and service and... And service them and, yeah, all the moving parts that break and stuff. So, um, you know, we're now at this point where we may not be the best at, you know, making electric vehicles. We may not be the best for a while. The people who are in our upper management, at least, they have gotten there through being, you know, very knowledgeable about combustion engines and, you know, and everything around that, and the feel and the drivability of different things and so on. Uh, and they've made a great career out of it and they've been good at what they do. But now that's not the thing that makes these companies survive. It's being good at material science, having a passion for battery chemistry, um, and, you know, mm. maybe a couple of other things like lightweight materials and stuff like that, mm. which have not really been, you know, the, you know, talking points in our industry. Yeah, but also soft skills, uh, like management style needs yeah. to be different. Um, so uh, the uh, yeah the silo logic uh, of course was a thing that proved well not good to put it like that for many companies yeah. uh, also in the ice in the internal combustion engine age so ice age sounds yeah, yeah. actually <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> sounds actually pretty relevant uh, mm. the, that it's going to be archaic in a, in a while. <laughs> Uh, but uh, did, did you just make it up, Ice Age? No, it just it just happened. <laughs> yeah. I, yeah. Let's coin that. Yeah, yeah. George, <laughs> Ice Age internal combustion engine. Yeah, that's actually cool to, yeah. to talk about it in this way because it, it is going to be like like we're in a few years. It, it's going to feel fewer more. It's going to feel like like an Ice Age. Um, anyway. Um, the, 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 the management tools and the logics and the relationships that we had in that uh, chapter of the industry will, will have to evolve. And as you said, like a lot of people are, um, um, this is a potential problem, that a lot of people are approaching like the management of this whole new situation with a, a traditional sort of level of complacency yes. in a polite way. Yeah. Um, which is unfortunate because it seems that a more radical approach without the legacy issues um, of, uh, let's, you know, in Georgia's direct area, the sourcing of components, as an example, mm. uh, there are fewer components that you would need to source yeah. for, a, for a battery electric vehicle. Yeah. Um, so does that mean that you need fewer people in, in sourcing or does it mean that you need people more focused on getting the absolute best out of... Uh, you know what we are sourcing. Do we need to build batteries ourselves? Should we outsource those to someone else? Mm, yeah. um, should we be in a partnership with someone who's built batteries all their lives? Should uh, and then the 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 elephant in the room for me is software. Mm. Um, yes. And it's something that Jim and I certainly spend a lot of time working on software development and mm. how to change methodologies within. Yes, so it's uh, about redefining a little bit what is the core things of your organization. Automotive uh, core business used to be getting the metal, making it in the shapes that we need uh, and and, uh, doing a big scale uh, factories of that uh, and and buying in the rest. Um, But software basically already for a long time uh, people are talking about new cars are more like a software package, more like an iPhone in a way that yeah. you're buying instead of anything else. 
and that uh, that I always found it very vague, and I never really understood what what they meant. But when you look at the example of Tesla, then you really understand because they are today selling cars that have all the hardware that they need in order to drive autonomously. Uh, but they are not allowed yet to drive autonomously and also the software is not ready. So you just buy this hardware and over time with software updates it will be possible to be an autonomously driving uh, vehicle. And uh, then you see that you are completely changing the, the, the product by just doing a software update. So software should be as a core activity as the engine teams uh, yeah. are today, for example. Yeah, but something that's um, uh, occurring to me more and more is, I think like uh, many companies are, are, are suddenly too small. So for example, um, the, the, I'm just talking, thinking like volumes required to be a, a profitable and sustainable business. Um, uh, and sustainable in the economic terms, not the yeah, 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 yeah. In economic, but only also supply chain, yeah. uh, like your your yeah your inputs and outputs, but effectively economy. Yeah. Right. So when you are building just hardware and engine uh, as we know it today, still and like a, a car or a truck as a finished product, um, you were, uh, let's say, more or less successful de depending also on the number of thousands of vehicles you were able to put on the road. But suddenly, um, now if we're talking about software and if we're talking about charging stations, uh, if we're talking about um, uh, a whole lot of other areas that are necessary to be competitive in, in the uh, ace age, <laughs> then um, you're suddenly really small because uh, ace just for the yes. listeners is uh, autonomous, connected, and electrified vehicles. Yeah, thanks for that. So you're suddenly really small because very few can say that. Uh, like I'm not sure, like Volkswagen or Toyota or whatever mm. Tesla maybe can say that we can. Uh, do the software part or Apple could do it uh, so there's a this is why there's a lot of uh, like articles about an Apple car as well yeah um, so the, and, and a lot of fear as well because a lot Apple's of fear. cash pile is enough to buy yeah the, one of the biggest players <laughs> Volkswagen several times over mm. yeah yeah so, so um, this is one thing and then also if we're looking at charging stations that like while we are now in this transitional phase is something that the customers say actively say that they want us to have um, it's like imagine if 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 you would go and buy like a, a traditional like a, a diesel car or a diesel truck or whatever and asking at the dealership guys do you own petrol stations uh, exclusively own petrol stations where I can charge where I can sorry uh, fill up my fill, fill my tank mm -hmm. this is happening now according to our sales and marketing with uh, customers for the uh, electrified vehicles they want us to be able to provide them a complete solution mm -hmm. and of course like doing it alone poof. yeah and uh, and these are not the sort of partnerships that we, we've entered into before and yeah um, just a couple of years ago when speaking with some of our 
yeah, maybe commercial sales teams and uh, and even vehicle teams, it was uh, really difficult for people to understand the idea that uh, you couldn't just add more charging stations. And when you talk about something like a heavy goods vehicle, you, you need maybe 700 kilowatt hours delivered in 45 minutes. Mm. And uh, you can imagine situations where there are a lot of heavy goods vehicles arriving at the same time to the same place and wanting to be recharged. Yes, a certain a, amount of miles away from Stockholm, uh, just stay there for the night and drive the rest the next day. Yeah, so there will uh, be a, one example peak, would peak. be a, a ferry terminal mm. where you yeah. know, the, the trucks are getting there uh, ready for the ferry to go and they want to charge up their batteries before they make the next leg of the trip in Germany or mm. the Netherlands. And uh, yeah, this is going to be problematic to deliver this kind of energy. Uh, yes, yeah. but then uh, where there is a demand, uh, there will be a supply. Like, uh, or, or are we sitting in a chicken and egg uh, situation? It's well, it's it's a bit of a case of also that we haven't really communicated what we're up to to the uh, power companies up until relatively recently. Mm. So when you speak mm. to them about these kind of things, they almost hang up the phone. They they think you're crazy. Um, but if you look at it logically, are we going to change the way that ferries work to transport, let's say, fresh tomatoes from Spain uh, to uh, to Sweden or Denmark and they get on a ferry or something? Mm. Probably not going to change that. Um, so how do we deal with that? Mm. Yeah. But it's a lot about what you said, chicken and egg, sometimes. I mean, the I, I see it's it's perfectly valid and it makes sense. For example, Volkswagen uh, in the on the power day, Porsche was talking about um, having partnerships with effectively partnerships with tennis clubs and restaurants and uh, like prestigious destinations that the Porsche customers could use to to charge their uh, Taycans or mm. something like that. So. Um, one way to, to solve it currently is with partnerships because that means commitment by one or more or two or more actually mm. uh, interested parties that this will happen and we'll do our we're, we'll commit to that. Um, and I think after the whole thing get gains some critical mass, then it will be much more streamlined um, because everybody's going to move moving in that direction more or less. Yes, and I think uh, about this. If it is chicken and egg, I think we should start with just or we a day <laughs> we should start with building a lot of electric vehicles, personal uh, cars, and uh, trucks, uh, long long distance heavy vehicles, mm. um, and then. Afterwards, the grid and the energy uh, production facilities can extend their operations because I, I think it would be unreasonable yeah. to now ask of electricity providers to start increasing the capacity when there is nothing. But it's it's yeah. not just increasing there. capacity, it's also the delivery system. So a cable is only so thick, mm. maybe. Um, and so you can take some extreme examples such as, um, let's say, garbage trucks working in the Swiss Alps. Mm -hmm. um, and they want to change to electric trucks for the garbage because all of the uh, the residents want to have clean air in the Swiss Alps. 
So they changed them all, but then they discovered that the, the garbage depot where all the trucks go at the end of the night um, is, uh, has a fuse that's only 50 amps. And so that 50 amp fuse means that you can't draw enough electricity across the power lines mm. to the garbage truck uh, place mm-hmm. uh, to charge the four vehicles that they have overnight. So you have this intrinsic problem that you can't charge the vehicles with enough electricity by the next day for them to go out and do the next round. Mm-hmm. Um, and these sort of problems do occur in reality. But is this, is this only the thickness of the cable? Do we have to completely change some cables? Just like with uh, fiber, in- internet over mm. uh, glass fiber. Well, if, if, you, tra- if you remember when you, you get um, an electric cable uh, and uh, e- even an electric toaster is a good example, mm. and you heat up the cable by passing current through the, the cable uh, and it glows red mm. and it cooks your toast. Nice. So uh, if you put a thicker cable in there, then it won't heat up and glow red and your toast won't be cooked. So resistance is proportional to the, uh, to the, the diameter, diameter of the wire yeah. and the materials that are in it. Um, and the same for the overhead cables. So they're, they're usually at 400 kilovolts, I think 400,000 volts, maybe more, I can't remember. And then you have these little substations which then convert, convert to, to yeah. a lower voltage and then it, as it comes to your house, then even down to 230 yeah. if necessary. But what Neil is talking about, and this is like um, solving bottlenecks that will come up while this yeah. uh, increase in, in capacity, so while the system is filling up, you will find one bottleneck that you need to solve it, or and then you'll find the next one and so on, because maybe the next one will be at the power plant or whatever. Exactly. Um, and in the meantime, I mean, maybe you can partially rely on some kind of smarter management of the charging of the trucks. Maybe you won't do it all four of them overnight. Maybe you will do like whatever. All the trucks need 100% battery. And and adding 100% electricity to the battery doesn't increase the mass of the vehicle by anything like verifiable by our own weight scales, let's say. Mm -hmm. It's negligible. Um, So, um, you know, it has no weight. Yeah. so this is this is kind of the thing that George is getting in as well is that it's an opportunity for machine learning, of course, to understand the patterns of the vehicles that they're the routes that they're driving and yeah. optimize the charging of the vehicle, you know, for the type of route that it's doing, which will be key to running logistics supply chains with heavy duty vehicles over time with electric. But also, there's, you know, we've talked about the let's say complacency that has occurred within our own industry and the the barriers to entry within automotive that have now been lowered to allow all these new players to come from outside that don't have the legacy problems that we have equally with the electrical grids, they have been complacent too Mm. because their business model has worked very well. They've made money every year by making little bits of investments here and there, keeping their infrastructure together. Maybe when there's a storm, they have to make some more investments, but uh, otherwise, you know, that's the way that businesses run. Um, And um, yeah. There has been a lot of complacency there. There hasn't been investment for maybe 50 or 100 years in some places, and there's going to have to be an awful lot of infrastructure investment. Or we move to a more decentralized grid. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And people are producing power in a decentralized location. Yeah. Solar, wind. Yeah. Yeah, things yes. like that. Yes, but that is uh, t- together with the bottleneck. Like, uh, the highest incentive to do a decentralized project is at the very uh, stop, maybe, yeah. to start with. Mm. Yeah, 
So we'll be dealing with these problems and ticking them off one by one over time, I think. The only thing that I'm still thinking about is uh, at one point in time, people were also talking about hydrogen mm. um, because then infrastructurally, you could potentially fill uh, your car with hydrogen and then there's these hydrogen cells that are producing the uh, energy. Yeah. Uh, did that ultimately fail? Do, um, do we know anything well, about so that? So there's, there's a couple of problems with hydrogen. Um, firstly, that you know we don't have the kind of infrastructure for delivering hydrogen that we have, for example, like natural gas. Um, no, not yet, but, so, but it is. And so for hydrogen, you need to keep it at 10 bar. Um, so 10 times atmospheric pressure to, um, to keep it uh, mm -hmm. in liquid form. So that's, that's quite uh, a high pressure for, for any liquid. Um, and then the, uh, the other thing about it is that if you remember from the periodic table, uh, hydrogen is one molecule, mm -hmm. it's the smallest molecule. So trying to keep that little bugger contained is also problematic. So if you imagine that you leave your car with a hydrogen tank, um, which will be some sort of toroidal, like donut-shaped thing made out of carbon fiber and titanium weave or something crazy mm -hmm. to keep that ten-bar tank from, uh, mm -hmm. you know, blowing up in an accident. Um, even then, you're going to have problems with hydrogen leaking out of connecting pipes, out mm -hmm. of every little uh, gasket between it. So if you leave it at the airport for two weeks, likelihood is there'll be very little hydrogen left in your mm -hmm. fuel tank when you get back. Um, so assuming that you don't build a, a hydrogen distribution network with pipes and all sorts of things in you know, hydrogen gas stations, um, you could, of course, produce it through electrolysis uh, on site with water. So, um, so that's one way that you could do it. Uh, and I think it's probably the most economically viable way. So maybe for you know, very long haulage truck you know, that are doing these uh, you know, singular routes, maybe through Canada or through parts of the Nordics and so on, uh, where it's just not viable for them to run because of weather conditions and so on with mm. batteries. Um, that may be uh, a viable business model in future. Yeah. Um, or coming back to your Swiss Alps example, maybe yeah. this kind of, for these kinds of applications. Yeah, these corner cases where, yeah. you know, electric is just really, really difficult. Um, I mean, we have to think also about the electric infrastructure that you have in sub-Saharan Africa, mm. although it's very difficult to yeah. split Africa into sub-Saharan and, you know, it's a very different mm. continent and, you know, one country next to the other is completely uh, different levels of uh, advancement in civilization. But hydrogen in itself is not likely to be the common form of uh, combustion transportation, let's say. Mm. It's it's going to be really a corner case for maybe for ships could be something of interest. I don't know. Mm. Yes, uh, that like uh, I don't really know. Uh, but today the big ships that are used to bring stuff from China to Europe is uh, uh, yeah, very bad, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> in, in a word, yes. <laughs> yeah. So they're using heavy fuel oil, yeah. and um, and I think the and and maybe your listeners can correct me on this, but I think the emissions legislation only comes into uh, force when they're sort of getting closer to ports or to mainland. So then, when they're out, 
uh, out on the main seas, they can switch to a much higher sulfur content, really dirty, heavy mm. fuel to run the, 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 the ships. I think I've heard this as well. Yeah. It's a no man's land uh, on the sea, so they can just do whatever they want. Yeah, I mean, there's certainly some, you know, like UN pollution things and all that to dump, you know, garbage or uh, sewage into the, the sea. So I think one of those big uh, cruise line companies was fined a couple of years ago for emptying their toilets into the sea. Yeah, but the uh, like exhaust is I don't yeah. think it's really yeah controlled. I think that's it's pretty uncontrolled, um, mm. and yeah, but that's you know it makes it economically viable for them because nobody else wants to burn that fuel oil because they can't because of environmental regulations. Mm. Um, so yeah. maybe uh, as a last topic. Uh, Recently, it has come to my attention that this Elopile, mm. or maybe people on the internet can help to correct, it's a yeah. hero's engine, uh, was uh, invented uh, by the old Greeks. Mm. And it is uh, just a decorational item because yeah. it's just uh, steam coming out of uh, two small pipes and then there is a, a thing rotating around. Uh, but it is quite astonishing that so many uh, uh, many years, like thousands of years, before the uh, steam engine uh, changed the uh, it, uh, caused the industrial revolution, uh, that there was already this uh, activity, yeah. and it brought me to the idea: where would we be now? If then the old Greeks haven't haven't been so lazy to not develop it further, yeah, uh, and because then today we would already be living on Mars or already yeah. dead because we had already uh, uh, done the you know end of climate change yeah. Yeah. scenario. But actually, I think this is a, a very interesting that you say it like this because I I see that the the base idea. So in 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 many cases in life, perhaps. We have a good base idea, a good, a good foundation, like this is in principle, we see it with today's eyes that this is a steam engine. And from that we can like power, like with, through cogs, we can power like some, we can give yeah. motion to because something else or we can use it to produce electricity or whatever. Because yeah. the, the torque on that would be very low. It so would be it, low. And so initially people, I presume, would sort of say, well, this is fun, but it doesn't produce anything of any value because you know, the amount of gearing that would be required to make it do the same thing as a donkey walking around, mm. yeah, yeah. you know, would be immense. But you... And maybe you, people just stopped at that point and said, this is a fun curiosity yeah. as it spins around. And maybe they tried to make it bigger, but it was breaking down. Who knows? Yeah, yeah. But, uh, I mean, you can see, like, through this example, that you need a whole lot of other things to develop in parallel because maybe this reached a bottleneck that was, that, like... Uh, that it couldn't be, it couldn't provide sufficient torque to 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 be to to get a use, um, so people just had it as a decoration, nice. Mm -hmm. And then you need a lot of other sciences as well to develop in parallel, like we have yeah. what we have to do now with the software, for example, because yeah. then you would need material science to make sure that you have more robust pipes and whatever to produce higher pressure. 
and then you need uh, uh, like machining more precision machining and then you uh, you would need like uh, material to conduct electricity to reproduce and things like that mm -hmm. so you need not only the base foundation but a lot of other things to click on it and get the system that yeah. we are and and, and you know in, th in that respect i mean i think if you were to point at one thing that has held back humanity and civilization it would be the Roman Catholic Church hmm. and Byzantium. Uh, yeah, <laughs> which is a like the it's like a two parallel universes from the same uh, from the same, the same uh, source ideology almost from yeah. the same source. It's uh, like um, uh, yeah, because that's also a kind of Byzantium is the like continuation of the Roman Empire, mm. uh, so to say, in the in the Mediterranean yeah. basin. Yes, it says here, heroes' drawings show a standalone device and was. <laughs> presumably intended as a temple wonder, mm. uh, like many of the other devices described in Pneumatica. Uh, so, a temple wonder makes it indeed maybe something that they, like a temple in a church is used to uh, sort of impress the yeah. common folk in order to make them believe in some higher divine power. So, yeah. uh, if that's your intention, then you come to other things. But I mean, uh, you, you mentioned something about, I'm going to interrupt you about, you know, would we be in space and stuff like that? But I think something that I've been reflecting on more and more has been the idea that we as a civilization or our, our sort of economy needs to function to expand all the time and so on and use yeah. a lot of resources. And um, so it, I think it's interesting if we look at the types of machines that we're building today and you look at the parallels with. Tesla and SpaceX and how they're able to leverage the value from both organizations to help development of each other. Um, realistically, going out into the stars or at least into our own solar system it, it is now definitely a thing that is definitely going to happen within our lifetimes. Mm. Um, and if you think about it, then um, sort of say, well, okay, I'm going to go out into space. I'm going to need some materials. So where are those materials going to be? Well, I'm going to need to have them somewhere where I can process them and use them uh, to build other things to go somewhere else further away and get more things and build more stuff like a civilization or something. So maybe planets like or planetoids like the moon don't have the right kind of materials. Maybe we don't have the titaniums or the lithiums or whatever. Mm. Um, but maybe those materials are out in the, um, like, uh, the asteroid belt. Mm. So... Um, you know, maybe we go out there, we send drones, ships out there. It'll take them about 20 years or so to get there and come back, assuming they can mine the stuff very, very quickly. Um, and then it brings it back to, you know, a, a lunar orbit or a low Earth orbit where it can be processed by some sort of, um, you know, machinery working autonomously or working with some supervision. But you're going to need to plan these things 20 years away. Mm. So... You know, maybe there's there's value in having like a um, a commodities market for a futures mm. commodity market for minerals in low Earth orbit or lunar orbit, because then you're. I mean, that's a good retirement fund. <laughs> and on that note, <laughs> yeah, yeah, on that note. <laughs> yeah, it's good retirement is actually or such a pension yeah. organization say, yeah, is of course say, more I, long term I, thinking. I put in a hundred euros today. Uh, into the, uh, I don't know, mining lithium off the asteroid fund. Mm. And as soon as they have 100 million euros, they have enough to send a little rocket out to go and get some lithium. It's going to take 20 years. But by the time it comes back, 
you know that stuff is going to be really in demand in lunar orbit and it's cheaper than taking lithium from the earth the earth and putting it there yeah nice so all we can say is find in the show notes the link to neil's uh, space mining <laughs> company and invest now <laughs> yes 